Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin. After receiving disappointing fertility news in her 20s, my guest today was successful with a vaginal first birth and cesarean second birth with her first two children. She recently gave birth to her third baby. She was hoping for a vaginal birth after cesarean. And last time we saw her, she was getting pretty close to it. Let's find out how it went. Anna Prager, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be back. You know, chiropractors always say, we're glad to see her back. Thank you very much. I'll be here all night. <laughs> all right. So last time I saw you, you're getting pretty close and you had everything already. You already had the vaginal birth. You already had the cesarean birth. And now you're going for the trifecta vaginal birth after cesarean. How was the end of your pregnancy? Good. The end of my pregnancy was, I would say, pretty uneventful. I, you know, had developed classic fatigue and aches and pains, but... I was feeling pretty good. And around 38 weeks or so, I went in for a weekly checkup and my doctor noticed that my fluid level was getting a bit low. And so when that happened, I started going in daily for her to monitor it because she was concerned that if it went too low, it could jeopardize my chances of being able to have a VBAC. Mm -hmm. And so I would say around... 39 weeks or so, I went in and my fluid level wasn't where she wanted it to be. So her recommendation for me was to do an induction at 39 weeks. And I was ambivalent about this because my body really hadn't, I was, I think, two centimeters dilated, perhaps like 80% of face. So my body was getting there, but I wasn't, you know, fully there. And so the idea of inducing me and potentially what that could mean or what that could lead to was a little anxiety provoking, but she and I talked it through and I made it clear to her throughout my pregnancy. It was extremely important for me to have a VBAC. That was a priority for me. And I wanted together, both she and I to do everything we could to make sure it happened. And her advice to me, she ultimately left it up to me. She said to me, if you want, we can wait and we can give it a few more days and see. But her recommendation was that if I really wanted to have a VBAC, if that was my priority. In that moment, everything was looking good. And she advised that the chances of having a successful outcome was to do an induction then. Just a few questions. You don't have to share if you don't want to, but do you remember the numbers when it came to how much fluid you have? I think it was like eight. Eight was when she was a little bit concerned. And then I spent a day and a half chugging water and I got it up to 10. So then at 10, she was like, okay, you're out of the woods. Just keep doing what you're doing. We'll wait. And then a day or two later, I went back and it had gone down to eight. And so I know, you know, I advocate for myself. So I did a lot of research and I understood that different practitioners would have a different opinion as to whether or not eight is low and low meaning problematic. But I've also learned in my experience working with different doctors, you know, all doctors have different risk tolerances, right? You know, some are going to see the eight and say, it's fine. We'll wait. We'll see. We'll be fine. And others are going to say, no, this is concerning. And I knew based on the doctor I had chosen and knowing her style, I knew that if a VBAC was going to happen, all the check boxes had to be checked. And so... I made the decision that for me, if I wanted that VBAC to happen, I was open to trying the induction given 
you know, the information she presented to me. It's so interesting because you talk about risk tolerance and it's true. It's risk tolerance and it's comfort zone. You know, at the end of the day, we all work for you. So the most important things should be your comfort zone, but we're human too. And we also have consequences, you know, if we do things and they don't go amazingly well. And so, you know, the conversation sounds like you had a respectful conversation about it and you heard each other and that she was respectful in terms of giving you the option, but letting you know you were getting out of her comfort zone. Exactly. And you were respectful and, you know, not pushing her out of her comfort zone because you, you know, took the information that you had and made a calculated decision and felt like you can move forward. Um, it's also interesting because a lot of doctors won't induce a VPAC. So there's comfort on the other side that she was comfortable doing that. I firmly believe that uh, your doctor in particular and, and most wouldn't give the same recommendation to themselves and their close family members as they're giving you. It's just everybody has a different set of factors that lead to what's comfortable for them and what is uncomfortable for them. So you chose to go along with the induction. And the truth is, I also have this, because you're pretty in touch with your body, aside from the data that they told you, like two centimeters and 80%, did you feel like you were getting closer? Did you feel signs of getting closer? Definitely. Even that evening, I think my induction, I had to arrive at the hospital at like 2 a.m. And I remember seven o'clock at night, I was starting to feel contractions. So it really felt like, things were progressing. And so that also made me more comfortable with it. I remember I got to the hospital and they hooked me up to the monitor and you could see contractions. They weren't totally regular or in any pattern, but they were happening and I was feeling them. And I think by the time I got to the hospital, I was already three centimeters dilated. So I was on my way. 70% of the way there and activity going on. So was there a plan on how the induction would go? There's so many different methods. Yeah. So what was really interesting is that she had told me early on if she were to induce what methods she would feel comfortable with. Because like you said, there are some doctors who won't even induce for a VBAC. And she said she very, very, very rarely will use Pitocin. So she would first use a um, balloon, the balloon, which she didn't think I needed because I was already three mm-hmm. centimeters dilated. Yeah, you're almost there. They don't so, take it to four. You're right. So that wasn't worth it. So her suggestion was to break my water, which they did. And she was hopeful that once that happened, my body would kick in and kind of labor would quickly progress. But it really didn't. After they broke my water, I think I got to maybe five, six centimeters, but not much. And things were slowing down and and not much was happening. So I have a question. Were you medicated for that water breaking? I was I medicated. Like pain relief medication? Yeah, I received a walking epidural, but I can't remember if that happened before or after the water. Oh, okay. Then you won't be able to answer my next question. What did it feel like when they broke your water? Uh, I didn't feel much. So perhaps that answers our question. Perhaps I'd already received it. I don't know. You're pretty tough. I don't know if that answers our question, but it wasn't all that memorable, it sounds like. No, no. I remember feeling a lot of water, warm water. It's, you know, it's interesting. With my first delivery, which is a vaginal birth, I remember my water breaking, which happened on its own. And I remember it felt similarly. So eventually she gave the go-ahead to administer. I was very concerned because once they broke the water and a few hours later, I wasn't really progressing. In my mind, I thought that meant, okay, she's not going to give me Pitocin. I'm not going to progress. This is going to result in a C-section. And so I was starting to get disappointed, but she decided to try a very small dose of Pitocin. Mm -hmm. And that's all it took. And my body just took off from there. And within, I think, maybe two hours, two, three hours after they administered the Pitocin, I was fully dilated. 
Okay, I have so many questions. First of all, even on a walking epidural, so Pitocin, and even on a lower dose, Pitocin contractions tend to be a bit stronger, longer, and closer together. How did that feel to you with the walking epidural? And not everybody probably understands because very few places offer a true walking epidural. In this town alone, in Los Angeles, yours is really the only hospital I know of that offers a true walking epidural. It's placed just like a regular epidural, but the drugs that are putting through to bathe the uh, nerve roots of your spine are less than the full cocktail that you usually get. So it's generally a mix of things like analgesics and anesthetics. The anesthetics prevent you from feeling tapping and pulling and tugging. The analgesics prevent you from feeling pain. And so on a walking epidural, they give you less of the analgesics, so you still feel some of the pain. And it's not an exact science. Sometimes you still feel a lot of it. Sometimes you feel almost nothing. And there's everything in between it. Without the anesthetics, you feel the tugging and the pulling, but you also can feel your feet against the floor. You can feel your legs in space. So it gives you the sort of win-win situation that a lot of people are looking for where you can walk around and be mobile, but also, you know, have some help with the intensity. Yeah, for me, it was a really great option because it gave me that mobility. I was able to be out of bed, you know, laboring, walking around. And in my mind, you know, it took the edge off there. I still felt the contractions. I felt pressure, but I wouldn't say I felt a tremendous amount of pain. So for me, I had used a walking epidural with my first vaginal birth and it worked well for me. It's your thing. (laughs) Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, oftentimes they joke if you've already had a a vaginal birth and especially if you're starting to dilate in in a face that you just really have to smell the bottle of Pitocin and things get going. Exactly. That's what happened. Literally seems to be what happened for you. All right. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll find out how this birth ended up. We'll be right back. (laughs) Hey, everyone. It's Dr. Berlin, and I want to talk to you about something that is close to my heart. Literally. Omega-3. It's a crucial nutrient that's sadly overlooked. With 95% of women deficient needed, the supplement brand I trust created their brand new Omega-3 Soft Gels. Designed by perinatal experts, they support you and your baby's well-being from fertility to pregnancy and beyond. Unlike other brands, Needed's Omega-3 is sustainable, pesticide-free, and third-party tested for purity. Plus, my favorite, it has a milder taste and smell, perfect for sensitive mamas. Don't wait. Visit thisisneeded.com and use code BERLIN to get 20% off your initial order. Experience the needed difference, consciously crafted for your health and the planet. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking to Anna Prager. Up until this point, she has had a vaginal birth. She has had a cesarean birth, and now she is in labor in our story with a hopeful vaginal birth after cesarean. You know, your story is always a bit of ups and downs, like expect the unexpected. I feel like even when the expected is like things are not going to go your way, as in the fertility story, um, boom, (laughs) you know, expect the unexpected. So at this point, you're 10 centimeters and you have a walking epidural. So do you feel the urge to push on your own? I didn't, which was part of the problem when I was ready to push. So they were able to lower the epidural, decrease it, and then that allowed me to feel the urge to push. 
So that was really helpful because I was trying to push, but it's hard to push if you don't feel that urge. You don't, it's like, what are you doing? <laughs> I can't imagine, but I do see a lot of women at birth say that, like, what do you mean? I thought I was pushing or things like right. that. Right. So I don't know with a regular epidural, if they have the ability to, I assume they can decrease it. They turn it down if they can, if you want to. So if they did that with me and then I was able to feel a stronger sensation, which allowed me to, you know, feel the sensation and feel the need to push. And from there, I mean, I think I started pushing around uh, like 5.30 and he was born at six o'clock, like a half hour. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it was great. I mean, was it intense for you? Was it relaxed for you? Very relaxed. The whole experience, you know, when I look back on it, it's like a very nice memory for me. It's, oh, it's wonderful. It's, yeah. You know, I don't think I had that with my first two births. And this time, I think I was just in the right mental space. I think I had prepared myself well, emotionally, physically. And my doctor was really amazing. She um, spent the majority of the day at the hospital waiting for me. So I, I felt like she was very present. And that felt very supportive. And also, this was really nice actually there was a lot of women delivering at the same time so they were slightly understaffed so the only people in the delivery room was me and my husband my doctor and the nurse that was it and I remember you know when I had a c-section I was in an OR with god knows how many people and then my first vaginal birth there was also a lot of people it's probably also because of COVID they can't have as many people in the room so I think just that in itself lended to a really tranquil environment Peaceful, silver lining. Yeah. Would you have brought a doula if you could have? No, I actually could have brought a doula. I gave birth November 14th, so right before Uh, that surge. And doulas were allowed, but I knew from my first vaginal birth experience that if I was planning on having the walking epidural, I didn't think it was needed. We did work with a doula for a few months prior to the birth, more so just talking about my birth plan and expectations. And I think my work with my doula that my husband and I did together was really helpful for both of us in terms of getting us into the right headspace and feeling like we were, you know, as in control of the situation as we could be. In the hospital giving birth. So you gave birth in the window, basically, uh, when the pandemic started pretty soon afterwards, doulas were no longer welcome at the hospital. Um, In fact, for a short window, some of the partners weren't welcome at some of the hospitals. You just had to go do it on your own. And there were all these different iterations of that partners can come, but then they have to leave as soon as the baby's out or partners can come, but they can't come and go. Once they leave, they can't come back. And then the numbers got good here in Southern California. We flattened the curve and all of a sudden duels were allowed back in again. But I guess right after you gave birth, I think after all the Thanksgiving gatherings and whatnot, our numbers spiked even higher than the first time, like two or three times higher than the original spike. And then, I mean, it's just you and your partner and that's it. Or you plus one. Some patients actually chose to bring their doula. Right. Or a family member, like a mom or a sister, instead of their partner. And their partner would be home, let's say, watching the toddlers or whatever. So that part didn't affect you. But were there parts of being in the hospital during a pandemic that felt like you were in the hospital during a pandemic in a negative way? No, actually. And again, I think it was because I delivered in that time really where things had gotten better. In that I remember my husband, we had initially gone to the hospital thinking that he wasn't going to be allowed to leave the hospital. He was going to have to stay with me the whole time, but he was able to come and go. So he actually went home to our toddlers and then came back. 
I would say besides just having to wear a mask, otherwise it really didn't feel much different than when I had been there for my other two births before COVID. Because you had some doubts leading up to the end of your birth, like when your water was broken and not really progressing and you start to feel disappointed, what was the feeling emotionally when it happened, when your baby actually came out? Um, it felt uh, right. And what do I mean? I think that from his conception to my pregnancy and the birth, it was my first time not having to go through infertility and feeling like I was empowered to make my own, how I wanted to birth. I really felt this very strong sense of connection to my son and to myself in the whole process, both from conceiving him to my pregnancy, to his delivery. It was an experience and feelings I hadn't felt, I think, in my first two, just given all the different infertility struggles I had and birthing difficulties I had had. And this time for it just to have gone this way really felt special and very meaningful. And yeah, it's really, it's a deep sense of connection to myself and to my son. Is there in your mind, and of course there are other factors, but is there in your mind a difference in the recovery from your original vaginal birth to your C-section to your VBAC? Absolutely. This was by far my easiest recovery. I mean, I think I didn't need painkillers afterwards. I was very lucky and had no tearing. I think within two days, you know, besides from the kind of afterbirth aches and pains you have, I had nothing notable. But it obviously, it's a C-section surgery. So even though I was lucky with my C-section, I had a relatively easy recovery. It was still hard. And my first vaginal birth, I had had some kind of tough internal tearing that also led to a really challenging recovery and a lot of discomfort. So this one, by far, was much, much easier. All right, we're going to take a quick break and find out, because you came home during a pandemic, now with a baby and two toddlers, and just when everything seemed perfect, things took a little turn. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We are talking to Anna Prager, who now has three kids. She has had a vaginal birth, a cesarean birth, and a vaginal birth after cesarean. Before we get into what happened when you got home, would you feel like your family is complete now? Are you up in the air? Are you thinking maybe there's more? It does feel complete. Um, I remember soon after we came home from the hospital, and I had my three kids together, and there was um, a new sense of fullness. Like a real richness that obviously I felt that way when I had just my daughters, but now there's definitely a sense of completeness was felt. So at this point, I suspect that we're done. We actually have frozen embryos from when we had gone through IVF. So that's now something we have to figure out and make decisions about. <laughs> so that's our next step is trying to make a decision about that. Yeah. I'm so happy for you that you feel complete, that your family's complete. And it sounds like your husband is too. And for both of you to get to that same point at the same time is really nice. I'm sad a little bit because I was like, what other kinds of births can Anna have? Uh, <laughs> exactly. The next will be a rainbow birth. Uh, yeah. Rain, yeah. Twins. I have no idea. Okay. I, I remember when I first got diagnosed with diminished ovarian reserves and my fertility doctor said to me, you know, how many kids do you want? And I said to her, I'd love to have three. And I remember the, the expression on her face when I said that. 
and it was this expression of like, you better adjust your expectations or that's not going to happen. So I, I often think back to that because I knew from the beginning that's what I wanted. And so I feel just incredibly grateful that I was able to manifest that and it happened. I'm so happy for you. The universe obviously felt like we needed more nice people. Okay, so when you came home from the hospital during pandemic, what happened? Um, so when we came home from the hospital, um, we had uh, family come into town, which was really great. My parents live in Maine on the East Coast, and I hadn't seen them for several months. And my husband's parents were also here. So we had both of our families together. And it was really great to have everyone here. And yeah, we were enjoying our son and everyone being together. And when my son was about two weeks old, my mom started not feeling well. And it wasn't anything anybody thought anything about in terms of COVID precautions. Everyone was being very cautious. So it wasn't even something we considered as a possibility. But a few days of not feeling well, she decided, you know, it was probably time to take a COVID test. And she took a COVID test and it came back positive. And the day we got her results, I started feeling like I had a sore throat. And my husband um, started feeling a tremendous amount of fatigue. And so the next day he and I got tested and he and I were both positive. Oh, wow. So my baby was now three weeks old and my husband and I are both positive for COVID. And it became a very <laughs> challenging two weeks. We were very lucky in that we had mild cases, but the amount of anxiety and fear was very intense. Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, you just never know if it's gonna be mild or not. You yeah. would expect that for young, healthy people, it's gonna be mild, but you don't know. You know, we literally just had an episode, I don't know if you saw it or not, but of somebody who got COVID right after she came back from the hospital. But it was a little different because hers was just as the pandemic was starting. We didn't know anything. And so I won't even tell you how they handled her case, but I'm kind of curious because yours isn't like, uh, let's say that was March when it happened to her. Yours is more like December, right? December, yeah. So um, it's like nine months later and we right. learned a lot more. In fact, in March, you couldn't even get a test. So. Right. You know, it was very hard to even find out if she had it. Uh, it was like by way of a miracle that she was able to get a test. Wow. Um, in your case, by the time you did it, like there were tests on every street corner. You just go get a test and right. find out. But still very scary. And at that time, probably it was already kicking up the uh, hospitalization rates, the positivity rates, the um, ICU rates, the death rates. And uh, you have a newborn. You know, you don't know how they're going to react to it. Exactly. So I assume there are other ramifications here, like uh, I don't know if you had other people in the house helping you out, but then I assume they leave. Correct. My beloved nanny, who had been helping us, ended up also testing positive, and she got it from us, Oh, which was really hard. And her case was okay as well? Yes. Fortunately, okay. yes, yes, yes. All considering everyone is fine and fortunately has had no you know, longstanding issues. What was the recommendation? I mean, if you have it and your husband has it and you have no other caretakers and you have three right. kids, did you test the toddlers? We did test the toddlers. We followed the guidelines of their preschool. 
So the preschool, they asked us to wait five days and have them tested because that would have been five days from their last exposure to my mom, who was quote unquote patient zero within our Mm -hmm. family. Your pod. Um, In our pod, exactly. And they tested positive as well. Oh, wow. Did they have symptoms? So my five-year-old, before we got her positive test, one evening she had a 105 fever and she complained that her eyes hurt. And then she was like fine, not even 24 hours later. And then our three-year-old, she was pretty much asymptomatic until it was actually really interesting. She got like a runny nose several days after she had her positive test, which was kind of interesting. Mm. So for them, really, it it was like nothing. The baby, he had, and I, I truly am not exaggerating, he had like one afternoon, two hours of a little bit of sinus congestion. And that was it. We didn't test him. The pediatrician didn't think it was necessary. So we assumed that he probably had it as well. But it was interesting because I remember, you know, we find out my husband and I are positive and I have these two toddlers here and the three-week-old baby and my husband is asthmatic. And at the time, we didn't really know. I don't think as much a concern. I don't know if they consider it an underlying condition at this point, but then I think it was. So I'm trying to like think about all these different people. And when I called the pediatrician's office, they really weren't alarmed or concerned. You know, they said, monitor the baby. But what they said to me is, you know, you're breastfeeding. And we have research that shows that antibodies transmit through breast milk. So she basically said, you know, make sure you continue to breastfeed him. And she also recommended giving my toddlers breast milk as well. And did you do that? Yeah, yeah. So I made them, you know, hot chocolate with breast milk. <laughs> I mean, like, why not breast milk for the whole family, for mom and, and everybody else? Exactly. I was basically feeding a family of five. So. Wow. I did think that at some point early on, when we didn't know the vaccine was going to come this quickly, I was yeah. like, why not take all the lactating women who got exposed, <laughs> you know, and we could slowly uh, give people antibodies that way. Like, it seems like a movie plot. That I'll start working on as soon as we're done recording this. So what happened to your mom? Was she living with you and then had to move out? Or No, she had come to Los Angeles to help, you know, with the baby. And she was going to be here for a few weeks. And she had been staying at an Airbnb. Oh, so yeah. we had her Airbnb and recovered and actually ended up, she extended her stay by a month or two and just left recently. Oh, wow. uh, but the thing is, we don't even know how she got it. We truly are one of those cases where we have absolutely no idea. I mean, it's not possible she got it traveling. No, not possible because she had already been in L.A. three weeks. And when she first came to L.A., we had her quarantine and test before we even interacted with her. No kidding. This all happened after. And your in-laws were with you, too? My in-laws were there, as was my dad. But they all went home before any of us got sick. Oh, so they never got it. They never got it. There was a few days in between when they had left and when my mom first started getting sick. Did you guys lose your taste and smell? My husband lost smell. I lost taste. Oh, what a nice little pair. (laughs) (laughs) We were very lucky in that we both got it back. I think he got his smell back within 48 hours, and I got taste back within four days. That's really quick. Really People who, like, lose it for a month. I know. I've read articles of people who've lost it for several months. Now I sort of wonder what people would rather lose, taste or smell, if they had to choose one. It wasn't so fun not having taste. I would want taste and give up smell for a week. I think that's probably what I would do. I think. But we'll do a poll. We'll see. Because when I had COVID, I had like every symptom under the sun except that one. Really? I never lost taste and smell. 
That's what's so crazy about this virus, right? It's just the way it impacts people in such different ways. Well, it was interesting because when I was in the hospital, they weren't feeding me anything. No food at all. Ice chips. I couldn't even have liquids. Ice chips only because I begged for them. They didn't even want me to have ice chips. IV fluids, but no food or drink. It was like three or four days of no food and drink. And I kept asking them, like, how about some food or drink today? And they were like, we think you might end up on a ventilator, so we can't. And that's why they weren't giving me any food or drink. And, like, the fourth day came around. I was like, you know, if I was home and not feeling well and sick, I would nourish my body with vitamins and minerals and nutrients from food and drink. <laughs> and she's like, I just want you to know you're the only one in this entire unit <laughs> asking for food and drink. And it wasn't until after that that I realized, okay, first of all, I'm going to make it because I want food and drink. Exactly. Uh, that, that was the thing for me with COVID. I had no appetite when I had it. I just couldn't even look at food. But then I, so I remember I was talking to a girlfriend who got diagnosed with it and I offered to drop off food and I said, oh, actually, I forgot when I had COVID, I had no appetite. She said, oh, no, I have an appetite. So it's like, who knows? Everyone. Who knows? Yeah, but then I realized later, because it was just coming out, that a lot of the people in the rooms around me had no smell or taste and didn't really care about food anyway. It's just different textures for them. Right. So... I don't know. It's different for everybody. And like you said, uh, in terms of the five of you and your mom, six of you, there's nobody has any long-term ramifications. Nothing. The one thing, my, my husband's had a physical and his liver enzymes were slightly elevated and the doctor mm. thought it's possible it could have been something from COVID, but nothing that's impacting us on a daily basis. Yeah. It's weird. The hospital here uh, where you gave birth actually is opening a post-COVID center for long-term issues. Uh, they plan to do a lot of diagnostics and a lot of testing to come up with treatments for the longer-term things that people have. So, you know, hopefully we see the light at the end of the tunnel for this pandemic. But in terms of its wrath and aftermath, we're going to be looking at that for a long time. Uh, well, for you, as always, I'm so grateful when you guys come and share your stories because people listen to them, they learn, and they relate. And, you know, somebody will relate to your stories. And I love your story and, you know, the whole thing from day one, <laughs> how many babies do you want to have? Three. And she's like, oh, let's try to squeak out one and now you got three and you're not sure what to do with the rest of them <laughs> and then all your different twists and turns and just how you generally just stay so positive and strong and whatever hurdles pop up in front of you you're like i will have to jump over that so i'm just gonna jump over it very inspiring so thank you for sharing that and again just super grateful to know you and work with you and be inspired by you and grateful to the universe for taking care of you hun together with me having your back thank you thank you for all of your support and and all you do for pregnant women all over the world oh thanks and at home thanks for listening to the informed pregnancy podcast visit us online we're overhauling our website and who knows you might actually find some pretty cool things in the coming weeks and months including some awesome giveaways we are informedpregnancy.com <laughs>